Welcome back to The Der Show. As the Justice Department moves closer and closer to targeting former President Trump as a possible um, person to be criminally indicted, um, we have to go back in history a little bit and put it in context. Let's start with recent history, just um, five years ago, five and a half years ago, um, and um, a little while be before that. But when uh, President Trump <clears throat> was elected in 2016, um, the, the progressive caucus of the Democrats um, <clears throat> objected and tried to interfere with the counting of the votes, doing almost was, was something not so different from what was done uh, on the House and Senate floors um, more recently. Um, <clears throat> they failed. Uh, here are some of the headlines just to remind you of how this how this worked. Um, you know, Jamie Raskin led the campaign. Um, lead impeachment manager Jamie Raskin attempted to object to electoral vote certification for Trump in 2017. House Democrats failed to muster support to challenge Trump's electoral college win. Uh, Raskin and uh, the Progressive Caucus raised justice and fairness objections to certifying uh, Trump. Um, they had no basis uh, for it. They made totally phony objections. Um, the big difference is they didn't expect to win. They had no realistic possibility of winning. I don't think anybody thought they could possibly win. Um, obviously, I can't get into President Trump's mind, but I suspect that he thought it was possible. I don't think he likes to lose. I don't think he did it for showmanship purposes. I think he did it because he thought he had a shot. He didn't. Um, the election, it turns out, was as fair as other elections in the past, probably fairer than the Kennedy election of um, 1960 and the Bush-Gore election of, of 2000. Um, but um, he never had a chance of of getting it reversed. Uh, of course, in 2017, when Jamie Raskin, my former student, uh, who I've always liked as a, as a person, I also helped represent his father back during the Vietnam War days, when he raised uh, objections, nobody thought about criminally prosecuting. First of all, you can't because the Constitution provides that um, no member of the Senate or the House shall be asked to answer for anything he did on the floor of the House and, and the Senate, um, certainly not for any motion he makes or any speech. Uh, he delivers, as I think I mentioned once before, a uh, senator from, <clears throat> I think, from Massachusetts. Uh, I don't remember who was on which side, and a se senator from South Carolina got into a brawl in the United States Senate, and one of them was almost killed by being hit on the head with a cane, but no criminal. No criminal prosecution, no criminal prosecution of Aaron Burr for uh, killing Alexander Hamilton. So it's hard to bring criminal prosecutions uh, against sitting senators, sitting presidents, sitting vice presidents. But of course, it is possible. We know it's possible. It's essentially in the Constitution that you can bring uh, criminal charges against a former president. Uh, you can bring it against a sitting president's son. Um, and um, it, none of these has ever happened. That doesn't mean it can't or, or, or won't happen. But let's distinguish what 
Jamie Raskin and his crew of progressives try to do in 2017 from what happened um, uh, currently. Jamie Raskin was just showing off. He was just wanting to have a show. He wanted to show how progressive he is. He hated Trump. He thought Trump would be a terrible uh, president. And he thought that some of the electors may have been improperly um, uh, prevented from, um, I don't know. Uh, his, his claims were never very clear, but he didn't intend to win. He just wanted to be a pain in the neck. And, he, he, and, and guess who the vice president was who ruled him out of order immediately? A guy named Joe Biden, who was then the vice president of the United States. And uh, he said, no, 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 unless you have a senator and a congressman raising the objection in, in writing, motion denied. What I'm surprised at is with what happened in 2021, um, I'm surprised they didn't get a, a number of senators and House members to join in a challenge that would have created a, a greater dilemma for Vice President Pence. Uh, Pence did, did nothing wrong under the circumstances. He did what he had to do. He did what the Constitution and the 12th Amendment say he should do. He basically counted the votes. But had there been a valid objection, I don't mean valid on the merits. I don't think any objection on the merits would have been valid. But procedurally, had there been a valid objection signed by members of Congress and members of the Senate, I think under the then existing statutes uh, and rules, um, the vice president would have had to allow a debate. I could have controlled the debate. It could have been for only a few minutes. And even if they got some votes, they wouldn't have gotten enough to change the outcome. So again, it's mostly for show. But um, when Attorney General Garland, who, as you know, I, I think highly of and like, and, and he sits under the picture of um, Attorney General Levy, who was appointed by the President of the United States after the former President of the United States was almost impeached and would have been impeached, Nixon, followed by Ford. Nixon would have been impeached, should have been impeached, committed impeachable offenses. I would not have uh, raised the objections to Nixon's impeachment that I did to Trump's impeachment on a constitutional ground. But Ford made a wise decision. Um, a, he appointed Edward Levy to replace the corrupt John Mitchell, who had been the attorney general and some of his other People in that department replaced him with a man of the highest integrity, the president of the University of Chicago, one of the leading educators in the United States, a man who was respected both by Republicans and, and Democrats. And uh, Levy suggested and, and, and Ford suggested that they pardon President Nixon. And they did, even though he clearly committed prosecutable crimes. The case against him would have been a slam dunk. They had tape recordings. They had John Dean. They had other witnesses. Uh, other witnesses would have flipped. They would have had an easy time, particularly in the District of Columbia, convicting uh, President Trump of uh, President uh, Nixon, former President Nixon, of all kinds of corrupt crimes. And they would, wouldn't have had any problem impeaching him and removing him either if he had stayed in office. But, um, but President Ford decided it would be best for the nation not to reopen the wounds. Uh, and if you think the wounds would have been great had President Nixon been 
indicted. Imagine what they would look like if former President Trump were to be indicted. It would divide the country beyond repair. And I think that Attorney General Garland knows this. I think he knows that if you're going to go after a former president, particularly one as divisive with so many fans and so many admirers and so many haters and so many detractors, as a former President Trump, you better have a slam dunk case. It better be not only bulletproof at a trial level, and any trial in the District of Columbia against Trump is bulletproof. You're going to win at the trial. But it has to be bulletproof on appeal. And, uh, and I mean appeal not only to the United States Court of Appeals, but to the United States Supreme Court. And they're not even close. They're not even close on that. Uh, no Court of Appeals today would affirm a conviction based on President Trump's ill-advised speech on January 6th, uh, telling people to come to the Capitol and peacefully and patriotically protest. That's protected speech under the Brandenburg principle, United States Supreme Court decision. And um, I don't even think it's a close question. I know a lot of my academic colleagues think it's not protected. If Hillary Clinton had made the same speech or a Black Lives Matter person had made the same speech, they would say the same speech was protected. There's one law for Trump and one law for Everybody else, and we have to remember that Trump is not above the law, but neither is he below the law. He's entitled to the full protection of the First Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, due process, the right to confront witnesses, and every other constitutional right. And so, you know, the question remains, uh, will, will he be in, in, indicted? And I think he won't be. I think he won't be. I think that uh, Attorney General Garland will also look back at history. And you'll see this is not the first time in American history that there have been challenges to an election. Obviously, anybody who's seen Hamilton knows that uh, the the uh, the Burr uh, Jefferson election, which was just based on a constitutional fallacy. Of course, Jefferson was elected. Jefferson ran against Adams. He didn't run against Burr. He ran with Burr. He ran against Adams and overwhelmingly defeated Adams, in part because Adams had signed the Alien and Sedition Act. And uh, although Adams had clearly the support of uh, the great and, and recently departed at that point, uh, President George Washington, that was not enough. And uh, Washington's uh, endorsements and support didn't help. Um, and and uh, of course, Hamilton had written scathingly against uh, Adams. Uh, he wrote scathingly against everybody, including himself. He wrote a pamphlet in which he admitted himself committing uh, adultery and, and submitting to an extortion plot. But so what happened, as you probably know, if you know history, and if, if you've gone to elementary school or high school recently, you don't know this. Uh, you know about uh, Black Lives Matter and about equity and about transgenders, but you don't know about the 1800 election because that's not part of the woke curriculum in elementary school and high school. But if you're my age or even my children's age, or if you've seen Hamilton, you know about the, um, the 1800 election. And you'll know that after Jefferson resoundingly defeated Adams, Burr came across and said, hey, wait a minute, I ran for vice president, but I got as many votes as Jefferson did. And so this should be thrown into the House. It should be, you know, et cetera, all these. And, 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 and Burr um, succeeded in, in making sure that um, Jefferson, who was duly elected, both in the popular vote and the electoral vote, wasn't immediately made 
president. It took an enormous amount of, 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 of politics and, and, and many, many votes. And finally, Alexander Hamilton turned it around. <clears throat> he was opposed to Jefferson's politics, but he thought Burr was a man of bad character and could never adequately serve as president of the United States. And so he threw his weight and therefore the weight of the, weight of the Federalists in some ways to Jefferson and made Jefferson the president. Jefferson was a great president. He said he would never use the presidency to act alone. Uh, presidency should be weakened, not strengthened. I'll demand that Congress really do everything. And then the first thing he does is he buys the Louisiana Purchase without even consulting uh, Congress. So um, justices of the United States Supreme Court are not the first people who promise one thing when they're being confirmed or in this case elected and then do something else shortly thereafter. So that election was filled with political intrigue, exchanging of votes and quid pro quos and you name it. Then there was the Tilden Hayes election. Well, even before that, we get uh, to the election of um, John Quincy Adams uh, over um, uh, uh, President uh, Jackson. And uh, Quincy Adams won overwhelmingly, but the Electoral College operated differently in those days. And there were also bargains made. Uh, Andrew Jackson campaigned for the next four years, accusing Adams and his party of um, a corrupt bargain. And it worked. And four years later, um, Andrew Jackson was elected overwhelmingly, became a very popular president, despite his racism and his anti Native American actions and, and attitudes. And then in Tilden Hayes, uh, again, nobody knows what the correct outcome of that election was. And both parties uh, played dirty political tricks. And finally, um, we get to Bush versus Gore. Gore got many more votes than Bush. And in my view, got more votes in Florida than Bush. And had that been counted correctly, he would have won not only the popular vote, which doesn't matter, but the Electoral College vote, which does matter. Um, Bush won the election by, I don't know, five, six hundred votes out of a millions cast um, uh, based on polls uh, being shut early, um, voters being turned away. Um, the Supreme Court stopped the recount. Um, voters in Palm Beach County, because of an illegal butterfly ballot, uh, voted for the wrong candidates. It, 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 was a, it was not a fair election. It was not a right election. The difference, of course, is that uh, Gore didn't want to be president as badly as previous uh, candidates did, and he just gave up too easily. He hired the wrong lawyers. He didn't fight hard, um, and he uh, admitted defeat. Uh, you probably know that Bush was about to admit defeat. He was basically on the way uh, to announcing it when the uh, the Florida vote turned around and changed. Uh, so it's the closest election in American history, probably the closest election that will ever be in American history. But no investigations. Nobody was indicted. Nobody was uh, charged with any crimes. And I suspect wiser heads will prevail uh, here, too. And I also think there's another little curlicue here. And it's just a little curlicue, but it may affect the outcome of the election. I believe that if President Trump were to be indicted, the Justice Department would also indict Hunter Biden. Because justice not only must be done, it must be seen to be done. And if 
the former president is indicted on questionable charges, and they would be questionable charges, there'd be a stretch of statutes to fit his actions. I think the pressure to indict the son of the current president would be would be great indeed. I don't think either of them should be indicted. Uh, you know, nobody's above the law, but nobody's below the law. And uh, before I agree that anybody should be indicted, I want to see the evidence. I want to see proof beyond a reasonable doubt that a specific criminal statute has been violated. There is the concept of lenity under the criminal law. It's a concept that has been applied by state and federal and the Supreme Court. And the concept really means that if it's a close question, if the argument could go either way, uh, you don't indict. If the statute is not clear, you don't indict. Thomas Jefferson once said that a statute, a criminal statute, has to be so clear that an average person can understand it if he reads it while running. Imagine that. It's just running, you're running, you're running, and you pick up the statute, and you have to read it and say, oh, yeah, that's clear. That's clear. Thou shalt not kill. That's clear. You know, you need consent. That's clear. Those things are clear. The words may not be clear. Murder sometimes can be defined very differently, and consent obviously is changing its meaning over time. You need clarity, and the idea of indicting somebody for a vague, broad statute because you don't like a speech they made, or you don't like a telephone call they made. Let's just focus on the telephone call for one second. Let's assume there are two equally plausible interpretations of the Trump telephone call. Hello, Secretary of State. I want you to look. I want you to look for certain number of votes that would be enough to turn the election in Georgia over to. I want you to look for them. Let's assume there are two equally plausible interpretations. One being, I want you to create them, concoct them. I want you to fill in ballots that were filled in for, for, for Biden and make them for Trump. That would be a criminal interpretation. But let's assume there's an equally plausible interpretation on the other side. I want you to search hard. I want you to look at every ballot. I want to make sure that every I is dotted, every T is crossed. I want to make sure there are no technical violations that occurred. I want to make sure that, you know, you just check everything, that nobody who shouldn't have voted voted, nobody who should have voted didn't vote. And I hope if you look hard enough, you'll be able to find, not discover, not concoct, not manufacture, find the votes that are needed. Perfectly innocent interpretation. Uh, I don't mean innocent in the sense of, uh, of right, morally, innocent in the sense of no criminal violation. And so... In the end, you're going to be stuck with a very, very ambiguous case that under the rules of lenity should not be uh, brought. Uh, will it be brought? I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, if it were a Republican attorney general like John Mitchell, he would have brought it against the Democrat. Um, and, and should you think about whether or not you can win the case because it's in the District of Columbia and you have a friendly jury? Should that be a factor? Um, should, should an attorney general say, look, if this case were being tried in Wyoming, I wouldn't bring it, but it's being tried in the District of Columbia, I think I'll bring it. Uh, that doesn't seem right either. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of complications, a lot of confusion, and nobody's going to be satisfied. The question is, which era is worse? Which era is worse, a false positive or a false negative? Which era is worse? Is it worse to indict a president who has not committed a crime, or is it worse to not indict a president who has committed a crime? And I think the answer is clear. It's much worse 
to indict a president who has not committed a crime. Even forget about president. It's more important because of the division of the country. But as you know, uh, William Blackstone and others before him said, better 10 guilty go free than even one innocent be wrongly convicted. And if you apply that principle, um, obviously the better thinking on this subject would be when in doubt, uh, throw it out. When in doubt, don't indict. Uh, when in doubt, uh, write a report, but don't indict. And of course, the House committee will write a report. Garland, to his credit, has basically said, I'm going to ignore it. Uh, he knows that the House committee is biased, one-sided. He's told the House committee, look, send me evidence, but I don't care what form you send it in. You want to send it a report, send it in a report. You want to just send it as evidence, send it as evidence. I'm not going to take it any more seriously if there's a report and if there's a unanimous vote of this rigged committee. He doesn't use those words, um, but I think that's the message he's, he's sending. He will not be influenced by the conclusions reached by the fake uh, uh, committee of, of Congress. But the evidence that they got, sure, that, that's, that's relevant. And, and um, you might want to consider that in making a decision. But I think the best decision today would be to try to heal the country, not to further, not to further divide it. And then, of course, the great issue comes up. This is just a hypothetical. It is not going to happen. It happened once in Boston, Massachusetts. Hypothetically, I just want to put out the following scenario. Trump's indicted. Trump's convicted. He's still on appeal. He's out on bail. Or let's assume the judge turns down bail and puts him in, in prison. And he announces he's running for president. And he runs and he wins from prison. What happens then? Uh, the law, even if the law says you can't prosecute a sitting president, that doesn't mean you can't prosecute a former or future president, put him in jail and, and, and let the election go forward. There's no law uh, on this, but it's something to have nightmares about. So let's turn to some of the, of the letters. Um, I'm surprised, pleased, and admit I was 100% wrong. Most of the letters, most of the rational letters, and I'm not talking about the kooks, the crazies who don't watch my show and just write letters and, you know, just, just insult me, my religion, my everything. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about those. The rational letters favored pretty substantially not having prayer in the schools and not having radical politics in the schools. I'll just read you a couple of those. For those who believe in separation of church and state, neither belong in public schools. The dirty little secret is that woke socialist for all CNN and MSC viewers are religious fanatics. They just leave out the God thing. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of kind of religious fanaticism on the hard, hard, hard left. Um, next letter. Like CRT, critical race um, theory, isn't propaganda. Of course it's propaganda. That's what I said. Did you listen to my show? I said it was propaganda equivalent in some ways to uh, it's the it's the left wing's version of prayer in the schools. If anybody needs a prayer, it's you, Dershowitz, because you sure as hell don't don't have one. Well, I I daven. Uh, that is, I read the words in Hebrew um, when I go to synagogue, but I have to admit I don't pray. I don't I don't speak I don't speak to God. I tried a few times, but he didn't answer. Uh, uh, in any event, here's one. Good one. I believe in prayer 
And I declare that Professor Dershowitz is totally correct. Religious indoctrination, including prayer, is as inappropriate in public schools as, a, as is racial justice indoctrinating or sexual identity indoctrination. Math, chemistry, English, grammar, reading, American history are the subjects for public schools. No, I didn't write that. <laughs> I, I could have, but I didn't. Somebody else, somebody else wrote it. Uh, Dershowitz is living, breathing proof that traditional moderate liberals quickly become useful idiots carrying water for the lunatic fringe commie left. There is an unprecedented putsch underway on the part of hard Marxists to drive religion from the schools and from the public squares. Dershowitz tells us that people of faith are as dangerous to America as commies. Really? Nice try. No, I don't think they're as dangerous. Uh, but I think they are dangerous to the American uh, tradition, not people of faith. People of faith are great. Most of my relatives are people of faith. People who try to impose their faith on the rest of us are not acceptable in, in America. Uh, now, somebody wrote me an article, a, a, a piece about that. And let me see if I can find it. Well, it doesn't matter whether I can find it or not, because I remember it very well. It says, yes. And yet, in God we trust is on our money. It is. Uh, and Congress opens its sessions with prayer. It does. Important ceremonies such as awarding the Medal of Honor open with prayer. They do. And the graves of our fallen decor are decorated with cross, star, Davis, etc. By the way, on that one, you can choose if you're fallen or your family can choose not to have a cross or a crescent or uh, a star of David's. It's a matter of choice. And, and then questions. So far... These have not caused terrible pain to anyone in America. I'm sure you understand the difference. I hope you do. If you heard the beginning of my opening monologue yesterday, you'll understand the difference. All of these things involve adults. When I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court, I was, what, 23 years old? And people said, God bless the United States and this honorable court. I'm an adult. I can hear that. God, we trust. I'm an adult. I read it on my coins, ceremonies. Medal of Honor ceremonies, they're for adults. C cemeteries are for adults. We're talking about seven, eight, and nine-year-old, highly impressionable young kids who are going to be coerced, who are going to feel pressure, peer pressures. And I'll trade. You can have all the gods you want on your money. You can have all the opening ceremonies of Congress. Just don't indoctrinate children. Don't indoctrinate them in God. Don't indoctrinate them against God. Don't indoctrinate them with racial theories or with gender theories. Just don't indoctrinate them. Let them be indoctrinated at home in their churches and their synagogues and their mosques. That's where it belongs. It doesn't belong in, in, in government. Um, all right, here's my usual once a day. You got to read it. How about Jews stop teaching hate for Christians in their Talmud? I always get this. Not a single person who's ever written this has ever read the Talmud or has any idea what it's about. Uh, Wild, I don't know who that is, a wiki, wiki, says 80% of rabbis teach the hate-filled oral tradition. All right, got a thousand bucks for your um, charity if you can show me proof of that. That wiki, I don't know what wiki is, but if it's Wikipedia. Wikipedia. So, no, if, if it's Wikipedia, I don't know what he means by it. If it's Wikipedia, you show me that rabbis teach hate-filled, hate for Christians. I've never met a rabbi who's ever done that in my life. 
There, then there is the fact that 80% of Jews vote for Democrats, uh, which I expect their shit is fully vested. Yeah, I don't always vote for Democrats. I don't feel any loyalty to the Democratic Party, but I vote mostly for Democrats. I've always voted for a Democrat for president because I think they're better for the country, better for the world, better for peace. I, I, yes, I'm a Democrat, but, um, but I don't uh, believe in hate toward any religion or any race or any gender or any group. And this nonsense about the Talmud teaching hate is ridiculous. First of all, the Talmud doesn't teach anything. It's a, it's, the Talmud is a collection of debates and opinions among rabbis. Rabbi, this guy says this. Rabbi, this guy says that. Rabbi, this guy says that. Rabbi, that guy's a fool. Rabbi, that. You know, remember the Talmud is the first religious book ever not to either burn, kill, or excommunicate dissenters. They honored dissenters. Um, the Talmud keeps all dissenting opinions because dissenting opinions may someday mean majority opinions. So are some of those dissenting opinions going to have things that all of us uh, don't agree with? Of course they will. But the Talmud is a great, great, wonderful collection um, starting in about, um, you know, the turn of the century, about just after the time of Jesus. And um, very important that uh, people understand what it is and what it isn't. Um, okay, last one. Let's see what that says. I can give you one if you want. Okay, why don't you give me one? Is the Trump's false election allegation uh, that is being investigated by the Justice Department a crime? No, of course not. Um, uh, the First Amendment doesn't recognize false ideas. Uh, the First Amendment doesn't distinguish between truth and falsity. Uh, the First Amendment says the marketplace of ideas will determine and decide uh, who to listen to and what to listen to. We don't believe in America under the First Amendment that the government tells the, gets to tell us what the truth is. Now, there are certain limited exceptions when it comes to food and drugs. Uh, the government has the right to keep you safe. But when it comes to elections, no way. Is, is there one core First Amendment protected right? It would be to say that the election was unfair. Uh, and if you're wrong about that, you'll probably lose the next election. That's the way it works in America. Um, Andrew Jackson said that, as I said, in the 1830s. And he conducted his whole campaign based on the fact that an election was, was corrupt. And historians are divided about whether the election was, was fair or corrupt, the first election. But no, it would be unconstitutional to punish anybody. And I include within that. Trump's lawyers, Trump's supporters. Remember, I refused to defend Trump the second time because I believe the election was fair and I didn't want to be associated with anyone who said it doesn't. But I will defend and do defend the right of anybody to challenge this election or any other election. So see you next week.